Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. American politics has not always been divided among the Democratic and Republican parties. Politics, it's a mercurial beast, and realignments and reorganizations they have happened with some frequency. Parties are not monoliths, they are coalitions, and the Democratic and Republican parties as we know them, they have not been constant. Those coalitions have shifted. If you were to go back in time a century and look at their policies, their membership, their platforms, their rhetoric, who voted for them, who voted against them, the rest of it, you would find organizations that do not neatly map on to the two organizations that we have now. The politics of, for instance, the 19-teens would not necessarily be analogous to the politics of the 2000-teens. Not only that, but America has also had other major political parties. And I'm not talking about third parties here. Sorry, libertarians and greens. But actual viable parties besides Republicans and the Democrats. One of these was the Federalist Party, led by, among others, the $10 founding father, Alexander Hamilton. We all remember him. And another was the Whigs. A lot of people don't remember the Whigs. A lot of people, if they remember the Whigs at all, they look at a list of uh, U.S. presidents and see that some of them were members of the Whig Party. And they think, what's that? And then forget about it. The Whigs, that's W-H-I-G-S, they were so-called not because of their love of headwear that looked like you had hair, but because some of the revolutionary colonists in the American War of Independence called themselves Whigs. So the party called themselves Whigs. And why did these revolutionary colonists call themselves Whigs? Well, they named themselves after a British political party that in the 1700s opposed the Tories and favored the supremacy of the parliament over the monarch. There was a lot more to it than that, but that's the basic gist of it. And going into the whole history of the American Whig party would be exhausting and tangential to what I'm talking about today. But their basic deal was that they did not like overreaching federal power, especially overreaching presidential power. In particular, they were formed around anti-Jacksonianism. Andrew Jackson, he greatly expanded the power of the executive. And just like the British Whigs, who favored Parliament over the monarch, the American Whigs favored Congress over the president. But I'm not here to talk about the Whigs. I'm here to talk about what happened after their dissolution. And the Whigs, they really started to fall apart with the election of 1848 when they nominated a popular outsider for the presidency. In 1848, Zachary Taylor could very well have been nominated by either the Democrats or the Whigs. He had just won the Mexican-American War. Everybody liked him. He was considered a likable outsider. He had the great nickname of Old Rough and Ready. And had the Democrats nominated him instead of the Whigs, we might be looking at a very different picture of American history. I know, alternate history is sometimes silly to indulge in, but it could have been that Taylor's nomination and presidency helped sink the Democratic Party rather than the Whig Party. But it was the Whigs who got him, it was the Whigs who nominated him, and it was the Whigs who had to pay the price of putting this guy on the ticket and into the Oval Office. Taylor was not a politician. He refused to strenuously advocate for Whig positions. He kept saying that as a former soldier, uh, he should not really be a part of politics or have positions. 
Uh, even when he finally was pressed and said that he would be a Whig, he said, yes, but not a radical Whig. On top of that, we're talking about a guy who had never even voted in his life. That is how little political experience this man had. Party elites hated him, but he'd just beaten up Mexico, so people loved him. His nomination process tore the Whig party apart. There was acrimony, there was shouting, there were people wondering, why on earth are I betting it all on a man who has never, ever voted? But he won the nomination and the presidency. But after that, Taylor managed to do one more thing that infuriated Whig party elites. He died. 17 months into his presidency, Taylor vacated the Oval Office in favor of the void that awaits us all, and his vice president, Millard Fillmore, stepped into office. Millard Fillmore was not a much better president than Zachary Taylor, and when historians rank presidents, Taylor and Fillmore are both around the bottom of the bunch, and their respective failures as presidents led to even more cracks within the Whig party. In particular, Millard Fillmore, in 1850, signed the Fugitive Slave Act, which infuriated many of the anti-slavery Whigs. Fillmore on the issue of slavery was wishy-washy. He didn't really take much of a position, so it is probably the single biggest political issue in American political life for decades preceding the Civil War, and Millard Fillmore, the President of the United States, tries to ignore it. Then, when he finally does address it, he signs an act that a lot of the members of his party see as a deep, deep betrayal in favor of slave owners. That action, as well as the rest of his lackluster presidency, costs Fillmore the nomination at the next Whig convention in 1852. In 1852, Millard Fillmore, the guy who coddled slave-owning interest, was not renominated for the presidency by his party, despite being a sitting U.S. president. No, instead, the Whig party, they turned their back on their own president, and in 1852, they nominated yet another retired general from the Mexican-American War, Winfield Scott, nicknamed Old Fuss and Feathers, which, I gotta admit, it's kind of an awesome nickname. And if you do a Google search for Winfield Scott, you can totally see that man being called Old Fuss and Feathers. Uh, Winfield Scott, unlike Zachary Taylor before him, he got pretty well destroyed by the Democrats in the election of 1852. Franklin Pierce picked up 254 electoral votes, and Scott got all of 42. After the disasters of Zachary Taylor, of Millard Fillmore, of Winfield Scott, the Whigs were done. The election of 1852 would be their last go at the presidency. From the ashes of the Whig party would rise two more political parties, each coalescing around a single issue that inflamed the passions of the American electorate. One party formed around opposition to slavery. That was the Republicans. You might have heard of them. The early Republican Party included a lot of anti-slavery Whigs and championed as noble a cause as you can get. Another party, though, formed around xenophobia, nationalism, paranoia, fear, and opposition to immigration. That other major political party that, for a brief moment, was maybe, maybe, actually going to challenge the Democrats and Republicans for national supremacy was the American Party, better known as a know-nothing party, a political entity based almost wholly around fear, bigotry, conspiracy theories, and unfounded paranoia 
as it related to Catholics. Yes, Catholics. And today one looks at this kind of archaic bigotry and sees it as just sort of perplexing, kind of a strange curiosity. But anti-Catholic bigotry has deep roots in American political life. And in the 1850s, there was enough of it, and it was established enough, that you could actually build a political party around it. No less than Sam Adams, uh, yes, that guy that the mid-range beer is named after, wrote this in a 1772 opinion piece called The Rights of the Colonist. And the section that I'm going to quote from is, ironically, specifically relating to religious liberty. Quote, In regard to religion, mutual toleration in the different professions thereof is what all good and candid minds in all ages have ever practiced, and both by precept and example inculcated on mankind, and it is now generally agreed among Christians that this spirit of toleration in the fullest extent consistent with the being of civil society is the chief characteristical mark of the true church, and insomuch that Mr. Locke, that would be John Locke, the life, liberty, and property guy, has asserted and proved beyond the possibility of contradiction on any solid ground that such toleration ought to be extended to all whose doctrines are not subversive of society. The only sex which he thinks ought to be, and by which all wise laws are excluded from such toleration, are those who teach doctrines subversive of the civil government under which they live. The Roman Catholic or Papist are excluded by reason of such doctrines as these, that princes excommunicated may be deposed, and those they call heretics may be destroyed without mercy. Besides, their recognizing the Pope in so absolute a manner, in subversion of government, by introducing as far as possible into the states, under whose protection they enjoy life, liberty, and property, that solecism in politics, imperium in imperio, leading directly to the worst anarchy and confusion, civil discord, war, and bloodshed. Unquote. So what Adams is basically saying there is that, sure, religious liberty is great, just so long as you don't belong to a religion that is inherently subversive. And he calls out Catholics in particular because he says, hey, uh, these guys are loyal to the Pope, and they're loyal to the Pope above the state. Also, they excommunicate potentially members of government, princes. And they see that spiritual power as more important than political power. And he also says that they can name certain people heretics, so they cannot be trusted to work with members of other religions. This is totally bonkers for a modern person to read. And, by the way, this is just speculation on my part. I imagine that if Sam Adams were confronted with people of an even more unfamiliar religion, say Judaism, or Islam, or Buddhism, or Hinduism, or Shinto, or whatnot, he would probably also react the same way. But I imagine that the only reason that Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Shintoists, etc., are not included in his anti-Catholic rant are because he didn't think to include them. But Adams is not the only American icon to indulge in anti-Catholic paranoia. Samuel Morse, yes, that Samuel Morse, the one with Morse code, the inventor of the telegraph, penned an 1841 book that made him sound more like a tinfoil hat lunatic than a pillar of American invention and innovation. Writing under the nom de paranoia Brutus, Morse wrote a book called Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States, 
which reads like something that a manic street preacher would force into your hands while you're walking downtown. I tried to read it, but to be honest, it was such a horrible collection of rantings and ravings that I was only able to get through about 25 of its 123 pages. In it, Morse repeatedly denounces what he calls popery, and he has this weird preoccupation with the Austrian government. He thinks that the Austrian government, working with the Catholic Church, will infiltrate and subvert American society, and the eventual goal of all that was to pull a Maximilian of Mexico, that is, to make a member of the House of Habsburg the Emperor of the United States. And Morse thinks that this is going to happen any day now. The inventor of the telegraph, ladies and gentlemen. And there's more. Another popular piece of anti-Catholic propaganda was a book called The Awful Disclosures of Maria Monk, which purported to be the work of a former nun who, in a Canadian convent, was subject to all manner of abuse and sexual depravity. And this book was a huge bestseller, and the impression that I got of it from the excerpts I read was that it was basically exploitation fiction and probably a hoax. There's a lot of sex things in it, like nuns being taken advantage of by priests and then their kids being surreptitiously, like, baptized but then slaughtered to make sure they go straight to heaven because, yeah, it's kind of like a horror movie and porn and xenophobia all kind of wrapped into one. By the way, there certainly have been all kinds of abuses perpetuated by the Catholic Church. Um, anyone paying attention to current events in the United States in the past decade is probably aware of that. Uh, Maria Monk, she was from Canada, and in Canada in particular, there were also very real, very scary uh, abuses by the Catholic Church. Uh, Google Canadian residential schools if you want to find something far more unpleasant, complicated, and real. So the idea of this very old, very large, very wealthy world-spanning spiritual organization um, abusing people, that has happened. But books like The Awful Disclosures of Maria Monk, they were fiction, they were exploitation, and they were published not as exposés of real abuses, but to confirm Protestant readers' existing xenophobia and fear. And all of this paranoia and xenophobia had been lying around for some time, and again, it was enough of an issue to build a political party out of, at least for one presidential election. As the Whig Party was falling apart, in the middle 1800s, the United States was experiencing an unprecedented amount of immigration from Germany and from Ireland. And many of those, including the German immigrants, were Catholic. They did not share religion, or in some cases, a language, with the more established East Coast Protestants. Some of the xenophobic former Whigs, and even some anti-immigrant Democrats, started forming organizations in major cities to maybe do something about this. Maybe do something about all of the perceived barbarians at the gates. One of these organizations, probably the most prominent anti-immigrant organization, was called the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner. It was based out of New York, and when you think of a fraternal organization, you probably are thinking of, you know... A lot of, you know, old, maybe upper-class white guys smoking cigars and slapping themselves on the back. And there were plenty of members of the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner who were like that. But there were also plenty of joiners who were middle-class or working-class. Folks who saw all of these immigrants as a threat to their way of life. 
Secret organizations do not, of course, stay secret for very long. Uh, people talk about Fight Club, after all. So word got out, and there were murmurs about this, you know, fun new club, the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner, that was forming in New York City. Uh, journalists started sniffing around, looking into the murmurs, asking about their beliefs, and members of the organization, when they were asked by journalists about it, would simply say, I know nothing about that. As in, I know nothing about this anti-immigrant, kind of hateful, xenophobic organization I belong to. So pretty much everyone gave that same rote answer. And given that journalists trying to interview people about their knowledge or membership of this organization kept hearing, I know nothing, well, the New York Tribune started calling the members of these anti-immigrant organizations, and eventually, anyone who just opposed immigration as a matter of course, know-nothings. Uh, this is not, of course, what they called themselves. When the various members of disparate xenophobic blocs, former Whigs, some Democrats, working-class people afraid of immigrants, when they did form into a political party, they would call themselves, rather pretentiously, the American Party. However, know-nothings, that is the name that stuck, that's the name of this episode, and that is how we remember them today, which I think is kind of beautiful. There's a little bit of historical justice right there. In the next episode, the know-nothings will attempt to enter into mainstream American politics, and they will be a factor in the U.S. presidential election of 1856, where they will be led by former accidental president, a man who helped destroy the Whig Party, the guy who signed the Fugitive Slave Act, a man whose name, when it's remembered at all, is synonymous with political failure. In 1856, the know-nothings will try to get into the highest office of the land, and they will nominate Millard Fillmore. This is a 100% total, complete, listener-supported podcast. We are adless. We are ad-free. We have no ads whatsoever. Uh, I work for you. Uh, if you would like to donate to the podcast, please do that. Go to interestingtimespodcast.com, sign up for a monthly donation on Patreon, a volunteer subscription service. Uh, go to iTunes, give us reviews and stars and the rest of it. Uh, that helps a lot of other people discover the show. Uh, I am on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Also, the podcast is on Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>